Welcome to Everything Imaginable, a podcast for curious minds on KGRA Radio. And here is your host, Gary Cochileo. Welcome everyone to another episode of Everything Imaginable. I am your host, Gary Cacciolillo, and before we get started, I'd like to thank you guys for listening, and also thank the contributors to my show, who are my executive producer, Candice Anderson, author of The Reluctant Messenger, senior editor, Amanda Steele, ghost, author of Ghosts of Me, binaural production engineer, Damian Keller, author of Sounds Good, Sounds Great, and monthly co-host, Jared Murphy, author of It's Not Aliens, It's Worse, It's Us. And if you are interested in becoming a contributor to this podcast, go to my website, everythingimaginable2020.com, and you'll find a whole bunch of information there on how you can uh, contribute to the show. And now, without further ado, our guest for today is Rad Al, also known as J.M. Deboard. I'm not sure which one you like to go by, but he's been on here quite a few times. You guys know him. And he's an authority on dreams and um, Edgar Casey and reincarnation and all types of cool stuff. Thanks for coming on, man. Hey, Gary, it's great to be back. Thanks for having me. We have an interesting subject coming up. Uh, Edgar Casey and Atlantis. Yes. And the uh, reality of this, uh, it's more than a folktale. You know, it's more than a myth. There's a, there's a reality to it. And uh, so, yeah, I look forward to digging into this with you. Yeah. And, and I am really, I mean, I, I have, the reason I wanted to talk about Lance is because I think uh, there's some archaeological evidence out there of where the society may have gone. So I was really, really, really interested in hearing where Casey was talking about with Atlantis and see how it compares with some of the stuff that I've uncovered. Well, he um, he centered it uh, in the Bahamas, um, stretching from there from, you know, Cuba and up through the Bahamas. If you look at the Bahamas on a map, you're seeing, you know, this uh, chain of, of islands. And what Casey says is that they are the top peaks of what used to be um, a continent, a small continent that that was there in the Atlantic off of the coast of North America. Um, and then there was uh, a series of cataclysms that mostly put it underwater. And what we have left today um, are the uh, the island chains of the Bahamas. Hmm. Interesting. And that kind of goes along with my theory. I, I had a feeling that I was close to America. And uh, that was probably somewhere near the Gulf of Mexico, if not in it. It may have been wiped out by you know, some type of impact. And um, and then the people bailed and went to some other places. Well, you've got um, down in the uh, Yucatan Peninsula, there is evidence that an asteroid or fragment of a comet or something hit. I'll just say 15 million years ago. I can't remember the number exactly, but, you know, long time ago. And that um, you can actually see the shape there off of the uh, west coast of uh, the southern tip of uh, mexico and you know the yucatan peninsula mm -hmm. you can actually see a shape that looks a little bit like a massive impact crater um and um but where uh, uh casey said that the civilization that was atlantis 
was a global civilization. So we tend to think of it as being located in this certain place, but it's kind of like America is a global empire. We're not just centered here in, you know, the, in the United States, the, the power uh, and the reach is worldwide. And in a similar sort of way, he said that Atlantis had this global reach that they were advanced technology, technologically, and that they had these colonies of sorts where they would go out to places where there were um, less technologically and spiritually advanced civilizations, and they would send people from their civilization to teach those other civilizations. And what ended up happening was during the cataclysm, um, about fifth, starting about 15,000 years ago, uh, he says that the earth went through a series of cataclysms and that there was a final realization that the uh, Atlantis was going to go under and that they wanted to preserve their culture as best as they could by assimilating into other civilizations. He says that's why um, there was a colony established in the uh, Egypt uh, area and that the um, the pyramids, the major pyramids, at least of Giza and the Sphinx are actually constructions that were um, uh, at least supervised um, and initiated by the Atlanteans who came as part of that outreach um, so that the people of Atlantis could preserve their culture. And that he also said that underneath the pall, the left pall of the Sphinx, is a hall of records. He said there are three of them, and that one of them is there, three of them worldwide. One of them is underneath the pall, and that when humankind is ready, that they will uncover this place and learn our true history. And, uh, well, that can't happen soon enough in my book. But, uh, <laughs> Me too. We're on someone else's timetable here. Indeed. Did he give any mention to where the other two libraries are? Yeah, one is in the Yucatan and um, most likely is somewhere underwater down there. Um, and let's see the third one. Uh, let me picture the globe here. I don't know where the third one is. Um, maybe as we uh, talk, uh, I can, because I'm a member of ARE and uh, the Association for Research and Enlightenment, which is the Edgar Cayce uh, organization that he left behind to uh, preserve and continue his work. And uh, maybe I can sign in there real quick. Um, locations, or maybe I'll just do a quick online search. But yeah, um, I have followed, you know, what the uh, Edgar Casey people, um, I call them his people. They are, mm -hmm. you know, the, 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 the main um, people who are part of the ARE and they um, have been continuing his work. And a big part of what they've been doing is pushing in their gentle sort of way to get authorities in countries where, especially Egypt, to do the research and to allow them access to places that other people can't get to, such as underneath the pyramids and right. stuff. And we have found out that underneath those pyramids are, um, there's a, a whole um, a, a array, miles long. There's all these different rooms and stuff. But they did some, um, uh, I, I believe it's called uh, side scanning radar. 
and that they use it to be able to penetrate underneath the ground. And this has this is a, the last place that I saw. The last updates that I saw from the Casey people were that they had found with using these uh, you know special and very costly high technology ways of looking under the ground. They had found that there are these open. Uh, there is specifically a large open chamber that is right off the left paw of the Sphinx, and they wow. think that they think that's the Hall of Records. But they've been. They've been trying to get access to it, and the Egyptian government, as we know, um, you know, some years ago went through a big upheaval, and it meant a changing of the guard um, with um, people who were part of the um, Egyptian Antiquities uh, Ministry there in, you know, in Egypt. And the Casey people had to start over building relationships with a whole new cohort. And you know, there's, uh, uh, you know, they've. Uh, I guess they, 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 the way you could say it is, is that they have been um, stonewalled. Um, they're not making a whole lot of progress with getting um, uh, access, but they did get some really tan, uh, tantalizing um, hints that this thing is there, and um, you know they're continuing the work of of trying to get access to it. But I wonder if the other two are more accessible. Well, the um, the one in the Yucatan is said to have been um, uh, it's it's under a lot of water, so getting access to it would be uh, 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 it, it would be a, a very difficult thing to undergo um, when you're when you're trying to go under hundreds of feet of water, trying to clear away all of the silt and debris, um, and then getting access to something that, when it was on dry land, was hidden. Uh, purposefully hidden so that you know it, uh, the, the people who might come along and try to get access to it before people were ready for mm -hmm. it you know they, they they wouldn't even be able to find it so mm -hmm. um i have here uh sargasso uh, sargasso sea is what they're referring to here in one of the uh, casey readings as one of the places where the hall of records could be um it's places where the Atlanteans, Atlanteans um, uh, uh, settled near, uh, they, they first started it as a colony, but once they realized that things were going to go really bad, they became, I mean, it's no longer a colony. It was a permanent place for them to uh, reside. Um, so I'm not seeing, unfortunately, here in what I'm able to review as we're talking, I'm not seeing... Mm -hmm a um in this website um i'm not seeing the place where the uh, hall of records is other mm. than two places i've already mentioned interesting well i have an idea where the third is all right let's hear it and i believe it's already been found and it's being hidden by somebody yeah i believe it was in the grand canyon ah in a, in a cave and it was discovered by a guy named ge kincaid yeah yeah, I, it's funny. I just ran across um, some information on that the other day. And the, uh, the evidence, uh, which, of course, has long been um, hidden um, or at least uh, uh, shrouded in mystery, shall we say. Mm -hmm. But there was um, an article. I'm in Arizona, and it was in the um, they said it was in the Phoenix Gazette circa early 1900s. Yes. And it was a report of the. Uh, um, of a, a city complex that was found there. Um, and there was, I mean, there is something there. It would be no surprise that you would have people who would inhabit the Grand Canyon and what would be the way that they would be able to um, 
maintain a civilization? Well, one of the ways would be to build a or use a cave structure or to build into the the walls there of the canyon and um, basically be an underground civilization, which we're now finding them all over the world. Um, there's one in Turkey where they have a, a massive city that they found that goes um, uh, like very far down into the ground and in layers. And when I saw the schematics of what they think you know the way they've already explored it and then they they showed the sort of the schematics of the way they've been able to map it out and it's it's amazing i mean it must have taken decades for people to be working non-stop to you know to to build these structures underneath there so um i think that your theory is uh i think your theory is a good one interesting that you say turkey because there is a group of people that um, have lived in the, um, in the Appalachian Mountains that nobody knows where they came from. And they were here before the English settlers, and they have Turkish DNA. Interesting. The, uh, well, the Appalachians are the, it's the oldest North American mountain range, for one. So it would be a place they, I heard that at one point it was comparable to the Rockies and that because it's hundreds of millions of years older than the Rockies, it's had a lot more time for um, the um, for erosion to, you know, so that they're not as grand as the Rockies. But it also says that there's a lot of time there is it creates a lot of opportunities for people to for civilizations to come and go in that area and would just never be. You know, they they would have been gone thousands of years ago. Mm-hmm. So, um, but they could have left behind some kind of um, of records or or uh, uh, people who were part of those civilizations. Right. And you know, yeah, they were called uh, Melungians. I just learned about them about a week ago. Rob, all mm-hmm. right. So here's the. It says the third one. Um, this is uh, John Van Alken, who's um, uh, been for decades. He's been involved in the ARE, um, and he says uh, you've got the two we've mentioned, the Yucatan, um, and in at Giza in Egypt. And he says that according to the readings, the third one is covered by the Atlantic Ocean near Bimini. Um, and Edgar Casey said in one of his readings that there would be a major discovery that would point towards um, uh, that, that would lead to the discovery of Atlantis underneath the waters and that um, it would happen in 1958. Well, in 1958 was the discovery of the Bimini Road, which is a, a structure that they've found deep under the water there. Um, that sure as heck looks like a road. It was, you know, a massive, like mega, megalithic style construction of all these blocks that appear to have been this grand procession way or road. Um, and it was found um, underneath the waters near Bimini in the uh, Bahamas. So the fact that he was able to make that prediction and that it came true is, or at least that there was a tantalizing evidence that it came true is, is, uh, uh, a piece of evidence that is um, intriguing, to say the least. Now, here's one of the things about um, Casey's prophecies. He said it in his readings, and other people have uh, who've studied him and followed in his footsteps have said it too. Is is that the when he says and when he tries to give dates for things, the he's looking ahead into the future to the way that something is the most probable 
from where he is sitting at the time. Now, it could be in the 1920s, 1930s, 1940s when he's giving his readings, and he could be looking at times more than 50 years into the future. So, like, he made predictions that near the end of the 1990s that there would be massive geological changes in the United States. Well, those things didn't come to pass. And it's one of the uh, things that have given fuel to the fire that critics have said that he was, you know, that, that it, they trying to debunk him or whatever. Mm-hmm. And, but it's uh, prophecy. It, he's, he's not a prophet. Edgar Casey was someone who could see probability. And the probability is based on odds. You know, the odds were from where he was sitting at the time, say 60 years before, that there would be some kind of massive geological changes in the United States. They didn't come to pass because, you know, the odds didn't work out that way. Um, you know, I've I've gotten the one in 44,000 chance of getting a Delta Royal flush. You know, <laughs> I've I, that's happened to right. me. But, you, you know, I mean. And, and so I know from how many times that you roll the dice or, or flip the cards that they're, you know, what the odds against chance are and what's the likelihood of that happening. So it can sometimes happen where the odds of something happening that are very unlikely, well, that's just the way that it happens. Right. So, you know, as we discuss, I just wanted to put that in there because as we discuss Casey in his so-called prophecies, what we're really talking about are things that were probable from the viewpoint that he was able to make at that time. And that they, it just because they didn't work out, doesn't mean that the, um, doesn't mean that it wasn't accurate. It just means that things didn't work out in the way that he was able to foresee at the time. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, she's still like one of the most accurate sources. It's interesting though. I mean, you have confirmed, um, I mean, if the Bimini Road is where Atlantis is, and the one library is there, the other one is in the Yucatan, both on America, pretty much, or at least at that time, it would have been all the same continent. And then maybe the failsafe was the one in Egypt in case this continent got destroyed. It makes sense. Um, yeah. One of the things that has, has brought me to this thing is, like when I was mentioning earlier about the archaeological evidence of it, you know, there's Plato's description of Atlantis. And uh, I had one guest who told me about this place called the Eye of Africa, which looks an awful lot like what Plato described. And then here in North America, in Louisiana, of all places, there's a place called Poverty Point, which also looks very much like the description of Atlantis. And both are ancient sites. You know, I mean, you're talking when you're talking about Louisiana down there into the Gulf of Mexico, Florida, yeah. which is a panhandle now. But at, there could have been other times in history when it was, um, you know, the 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 land surface, the the, the surface area. It, this could have all been an extension, basically, right off of the North Atlantic, uh, you know, that part of the continent, and mm-hmm. stretching out into the Atlantic. You know, um, I'm a, I, I've read um, or, or at least followed uh, Graham Hancock's work and uh, uh, the evidence that he is uh, cites for there being a cataclysm around 12,000 years ago. 
um, which aligns with what Plato said um, that came down to him through legend and his teachers in Egypt um, about the Atlantean civilization. Um, he said that they, it was basically, he just said that it is um, west of the Pillars of Hercules, which is uh, right there in um, uh, where Spain and Morocco meet. There's a structure there. I guess there used to be a world wonder that was there. Um, and he, basically all he can say is it was somewhere west. But he also gives a, they're, they're able to make a timeline from this. And <clears throat> that uh, timeline shows about 12,000 years ago. Um, that the Atlantean civilization went through its final apocalypse. Well, the um, time frame for when there's evidence that there was a geologic apocalypse, that a comet was coming into the atmosphere, most likely it was a comet, um, it came in at an angle, and it spread like shotgun pellets over the surface of the planet, um, going from basically the far eastern tip of Siberia, um, down across uh, Alaska, uh, across Canada, going at a diagonal from northwest to southeast. And the evidence that we're able to find ends actually down there in places like Georgia, um, Florida, Louisiana. There are basically pock marks in the landscape that are like shotgun pellets, but asteroid size or, you know, comet size. Um, and that this, as it's spreading across, it would have hit the um, ice sheet that covered, you know, uh, the North Pole coming down into uh, Canada and the United States. Um, that would have all been ice sheets. Right. And so when that happened, it would have caused a massive heating of geological areas in the hundreds of square miles where each one of these, you know, pieces of a comet hit. Basically, what happens is, is that almost overnight, you have this massive amount of, of water that is now being released from the ice, and that it would have caused catastrophic flooding worldwide. Um, there is plenty of evidence for this, um, and uh, especially in, in certain areas that might be prone to sea level rise, um, such as off of the mid-Atlantic and South Atlantic coast off of the United States. This would have been one of the areas that would have been hit really hard by it. So the timeline for this, for the uh, the final apocalypse of that brought down Atlantis, or shouldn't say covered it with water, brought all the water up to cover most of Atlantis, um, and what um, Plato said about it, and what Casey said about it, it all aligns with itself. So the, we're not just talking about prophecy here, um, we're, we're, or, or what or prediction that Casey gave, we're also seeing a lot of geologic evidence for it, but you can't get these um, established academic authorities to get off of the, um, what they've, what's been taught for decades or even centuries by the, you know, the theories that they have about, um, you know, say for instance, that North America was, basically just uh, had scattered primitive people. They came over the ice bridge from Asia. Right. Uh, the, the Clo it's the Clovis people theory, mm -hmm. which would which would date, you know, civilization uh, or any people in North America going back only about 12,000 years, which would have been the end of the Ice Age. Um, but the evidence, there's actually, uh, there, there's a lot of evidence that shows that civilization 
existed here in the North American continent, perhaps going back into the hundreds of thousands of years. Of course, you'd need Graham Hancock on your show. Good luck getting him, but he might you never know, um, to really cite all of the data. But from interviews I've seen with him, and he's he's citing these academics who were working outside of the mainstream, but they're still academics. They're you know PhDs in you know in in, in geography, geology, archaeology, um, that level of people who are you know they, they've got all the training and education um, to be able to look at the evidence and go actually this doesn't fit into the theory we need to now account for this but getting the um um the orthodoxy of of the the people who are writing the history books and who are writing the science books getting them to budge and basically admit that their theories have been wrong because they they didn't have all of the information they didn't have all of the evidence especially the recent stuff that's arisen that is almost impossible um, I've heard this, especially with the Egyptologists, you'll hear people who will say, well, if there is this evidence that there's all this stuff underneath the pyramids and that, uh, you know, that uh, the pyramids are actually more than 10,000 years old rather than dated back to about 4000 BC, you know, then you would think that the Egyptologists would, you know, would be the first to say something about it. And you go, no, actually, they're the last ones because they have to admit that the theories that they have based their careers on the papers that they've written over you know decades as you know the professors in top you know academic institutions that they've been wrong and you can't get them to admit it so it's really going to take it's it's a very slow process and luckily what we're having now is a changing of the guard that has been exposed to this to this information because of people like Graham Hancock, you know, his books and the others along those lines are not being fed to them in their university level courses. But these are people who have an interest in the subject and they're getting exposed to the information. And once they finally work their way up into the positions and the guard, you know, changes from the old guard to the new guard, the new guard is gradually able to inject um, these, this new information and knowledge into the discussion and very gradually it's, um, it's changing. But I was just the other day, I heard, um, um, my wife is a history teacher at a, it's fourth grade level, but she teaches at a, an advanced school and right. some of the stuff she teaches is high school level stuff to these kids. It's amazing. Um, what they're able to absorb if you present it to them the right way. But she was talking about the Clovis theory and I'm sitting there as she's recording her lecture, um, and I'm I'm thinking in the back of my mind, I'm going, wait a minute, there's all this evidence that the Clovis theory isn't, you know, that they're, they're, that it's it's wrong, or at least that there's a lot more information um, that can it needs to be modified. And I'm thinking in the back of my mind, like I need to jump on camera and play Graham Hancock for these kids. You know? <laughs> So the, the, these foundational lectures that they get, this information the, that they, they get, they know that there are alternative ideas out there and that maybe interest them enough so that they'll seek them out themselves. But, you know, they're fourth graders. We'll give them some time. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, do you, I mean, I don't know, for, for me, it's, it, you know, I always looked at like places like Egypt, all these faraway places as the places where the answers would be. 
I never thought that I would be living in the place right underneath my feet where the truth might actually be. That's an interesting way of, um, of looking at it. I think it's true for all of us in a sense. This, if you're in the United States, um, you have this idea that the, you know, taught to you by the standard history courses that, you know, the European settlers came here, that, you know, there were these, you know, sprinklings of these, you know, Native American nations. They wouldn't even, they would have called them tribes, you know, to kind of belittle what they actually were. They were civilizations that were actually mm -hmm. here. And um, they, they left behind some evidence, but they weren't building megalithic structures. Well, in some cases they were. Um, I grew up in Ohio and just basically, I'll say just down the road, maybe 40, 50 miles from where I lived, were the, um, uh, the Serpent Mounds, right. um, all there near the Ohio River, which of course would have been a major artery for travel um, for civilizations that traded and traveled along the river system. Um, and the, the, what, what is actually down inside those, you, the, the structures are, are massive. And, you know, so when they point toward the evidence, they say, well, these, they were, they were more of like tribal civilizations rather than what we consider to be civilization building on a large scale. You go, well, you know, what about the serpent mountain? Uh, you, you what you would have to do these days to create those structures we're, we're talking about massive earth moving projects and things that can stand up to you know weather and erosion for hundreds of years these people were building on a large scale it's just that the evidence for it the idea before the evidence was really deeply considered the idea for it was already discounted and so People don't look underneath their own feet for the history that is there waiting to be um, rediscovered or discovered, but it's there. It just, we need to have open eyes to see it. I think, it, though, that it, well, while we're talking about that, that it's a good um, uh, opportunity to bring up what Casey, how he uncovered the information yeah. that he got, you know, um, at the time when he was doing his readings, this is what they were called, um, where basically he went into a trance. Casey developed the ability to be able to allow his body to fall asleep, allow his mind to get the rest that it needed, but for his subconscious mind to still be present physically in to be able to um, give and receive with people who were in the room. And he he discovered this ability first to be able to help himself heal he went mute for a few months um and um he his family and friends were really concerned about him and they he he was able while accidentally basically uh as he was falling asleep taking his daily nap um there was someone in the room i think it was his wife who said something to him and he responded in a voice that was different than the usual Casey voice. And she came to realize that he was, there was something that he was channeling basically. Well, so he developed this ability. He ended up doing, I think there's 15,000 readings in the Casey material that were recorded 
and they they didn't record his early readings so the numbers are even higher but this was the point of bringing this up is, is that casey said that what i do anyone can do and that this is not something that requires really even psychic ability it's just practice the basic techniques of being able to meditate to relax to get your spirit in the right place to which helps you because you need a spiritual structure to be able to do these things which the atlanteans by the way were highly advanced spiritually because when you go into these places inside of yourself you gain the power to do things that can be easily abused and there are there are safeguards against abusing them but get yourself in the right place learn how to do the simple techniques that can uh, that can lead to doing these things and anyone can do it the the information that he was tapping he said was part of what's called the akashic records there are different terms for it but coming out of um eastern spiritual traditions uh specifically hindu um and vedic the um they 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 have this idea of the kashic records which is a record of all human activity and really all activity that's gone on in the universe it's all written into the fabric of space time and i've heard some physicists who have described fabric of space time as being a recording medium that the activities that's going on in the universe at any particular time and place is actually being imprinted onto the fabric now just because time advances doesn't mean that that fabric of space-time doesn't continue to exist so you could really think of it as like a great big book and here we get into some of the christian conceptions of a book of life the or in the gospel of john that the word was spoken and the universe came into being well the it implies that the universe itself is the book that god spoke into being in a three-dimensional material form and so this book this information is there and it's available and consciousness is the access to it so anyone can do this anyone can access this information i will say though that before you run out and start doing it that you get some of the basic training that's necessary and that if you want to do it you can be led or guided to it that there are higher forces beings consciousness that it's kind of in a higher dimension than where we exist and they are feeding information down to us and if we're ready to access this information if it's something that would be good and beneficial for us for us that wouldn't cause harm to us and others for us to access this information then if it's something that you want to do then you will have help getting there but make sure that it's something that you really want to do it's kind of like when people start playing with the Ouija board mm -hmm. because they're curious and then weird things start happening and you go, well, what did you expect? You weren't ready for this, but you went and played around with it. Well, this is not something to be played with, but it is something that your curiosity can lead you towards. You don't have to have necessarily a, a big 
high ideal in mind for what you do with it. It can be your curiosity that leads you into it, but you do need some basic training in the what you're going to be opening yourself up to. So yeah, Gary, you the, so, the information is there. It's right underneath your feet, or it's just deep down in your own wow. mind. That you can access so, so where can a person get this type of training? And have you tried it? Yes and yes. Okay. Um, the ARE, Association for Research and Enlightenment, mentioned earlier, is a great source of knowledge and information, whether it's through the ARE itself or through people who are associated with the ARE. The ARE is kind of a center of gravity for a lot of people who explore um, energy healing, um, psychic abilities, um, um, naturopathic medicine and healing, um, and all these, let's just, you know, all this stuff that's under this sort of the same umbrella. There are a lot of people associated with the ARE or who are in it as directors and, and big people in the organization who offer these trainings. Um, oftentimes, they, it's through classes that you can take through the ARE. Now, I would tell anyone who wants to do this, the first thing I would do is learn how to meditate. Meditation is anything that holds your mind's focus in a relaxed sort of way. It can be relaxed as just staring off into something that's in the distance. Um, it's getting the chatter of your mind, often referred to as the monkey mind, to, to, to it, it, the mind is going to chatter, but you stop paying attention to mm -hmm. it. And you practice it long enough and the chatter kind of gives up. It says, okay, well, I'm not going to be able to distract you. So why don't we just enjoy the peace and silence here? Um, I have found, and, and Gary, here's one I've, I've been practicing and it really works, how to get the mind's chatter to stop. It's called soft eyes in Qigong and other traditions. And what it means is focus on your peripheral vision. Just don't look straight ahead and focus on the one thing that your attention can focus on right in front of you in the center. Focus on the sides, mm -hmm. whether it's an object that you can sometimes when I'm taking a walk, I'll, I'll intentionally look at the sides of the road and I try to hold my attention on both of them at the same time, both sides of the both sides of my peripheral vision. And what I found is, is, is that that chatter in my mind goes away. And then as that time in that silence accumulates, you find that it gives opportunities for what's in the background to come forward. There's a still small voice within everyone that is in the background of their mind and you can't hear it as long as your voice, your mind is chattering away or that you're focused on something, whether it's reading your social media feed, reading a book, or, you know, playing a video game, watching TV, whatever, something that you're focused on. That kind of focused attention is a different state of mind than you need the, to be able to get into some of these, to access these deeper things within you. They require stillness and quiet. Now, so I've said meditation. I think it's also important to listen to your body and give it what it needs. And the reason why is because the health and maintenance of your body is the first and highest priority of your subconscious mind. If you could make your the highest priority of your conscious mind too and take care of its needs, then the subconscious will allow you to have access to the deeper places. 
But if you try to override the needs of the subconscious mind, which is like a child in a way, if you try to override what the child needs within you, then it won't work. Right. And, and I don't care how much willpower you try to, to put into it. You can't do it. So take care of the needs of, of your body. Listen to your body. And then I would work, I would work with energy. And what I mean by that is there are subtle energy systems. It's not a monolith. There's systems and they overlap with each other that connect to the body, beginning with the body's systems and organs that reflect these subtle energy, the, the ethereal energy, the, what, when we talk about energy medicine, what do we mean? Well, when, you know, you talk about like uh, the meridians of the body, which are these energy channels, you're not talking about like a bloodstream. You're not talking about an electrical wire. You're talking about a form of energy that's, it's sort of like, you know, electromagnetic energy is a form of energy. Well, there mm -hmm. are any other forms of energy. They go from the sort of solid material forms of energy that you could measure with, say, a voltmeter up through other forms of energy that we can't measure with our scientific equipment, but we can measure by their effects on us consciously. And the, when you work with energy, the, you can feel it within your body and the free flow of energy through your body as a conduit for it is an essential, um, uh, it's, it's, it's a necessity to be able to access these deeper gifts. So what I do is an exercise where the most basic thing that I do is I pull in energy up through my feet and I feel it go up through the parts of my body. And when I first started the exercise, I would very deliberately and slowly go, okay, now I feel it in my ankles, my calves, my knees, my thighs, my groin, front and back and sides, my hips, my butt, up through the internal organs. I would think of them, my kidneys, you know, my, my spleen, my colon, my liver. I feel it go up through my chest cavity, my lungs, my heart, up through my throat. I'm also feeling it going up my spine, up my back, through those muscles, all the way up to the crown of my head, breathing it in and then breathing it out and feeling it flow down, reversing that flow of energy. When energy stagnates, it's very easy to do, by the way, for energy to get caught up in your body to get, we have these places within us that become these sort of energy traps and you, you, you can feel it in your body. You can feel it in the tension in your body. You can feel it in your aches and pains. Right. So you learn how to allow this. You learn to let this energy flow, sometimes requiring um, a little bit of work. If you, you know, it might take some time. There is a system called Donna, uh, Donna Eden's energy medicine. Donna Eden is a, uh, this, this has fused together these Western and Eastern traditions of naturopathic medicine. And you might've heard of like EFT tapping. Mm -hmm. That's not, Donna has a version of that, that she does tapping on the thymus gland, tapping on what's called the K 27s, which are in the collarbone underneath in the hollow of the collarbone. Um, the, these tapping points, when energy is trapped in your body, you can actually tap to get it to move. But like Qigong, you're not just doing a movement of your body. You're actually working with the energy as you do that. It's, it's focused intention and making the energy move. 
So when you see the Qigong guy who's doing this slow motion thing that looks like a punch or a raising of the hands or something like that, people try to imitate the physical movement without what the physical movement, though, for uh, somebody who really understands what they're doing is simply following along with how they are moving the energy. So when that hand, when the hands go out from the body and what looks like a pushing away movement, the person is actually opening up their energy field. When they get into a crouch and they do look something that looks like drawing a bow, mm -hmm. they're pulling the energy of the heart and expanding it. And they can actually feel an energy in their hands as they do the movement. And they can feel the expansion of the energy from centered in their chest until it's going out around their body. Now, this is creating around you an energy bubble. And anyone out there who um, has done Bob Monroe's Gateway series, um, it was his Hemisync, Bob Monroe talks about creating a bubble of energy around your body. It's one of the most basic exercises that they do after he does what's called attuning, which is basically chanting the Om. And so after they've done that, they've pulled all this energy up into their head and they've done the chanting, which helps to release stale energy. They've done the breathing that pulls in fresh energy. Then he has you create the energy he, he calls it an energy balloon, but you can also think of it as a bubble. And here, when you asked, have I done it? This is what I've done, um, where I have um, followed his exercises, um, not knowing whether it was going to work or not, but just knowing that it's worked for a lot of other people. And so why don't I give this a try? And it took a lot of practice for me. I'm kind of thick in the head in some ways. And you know, so some people, they take to this stuff right away. Some people, it takes some more practice. It took me more practice. But eventually, I started experiencing things that were outside of my usual consciousness. And it's it, it, working with the energy, working with the breathing patterns, doing the chanting, things like that. They, for one, it did a lot of healing for me. And then once the healing was you know, that was the highest priority. My body, my mind, my spirit really needed some help. But once I was able to do that, then it started opening me up to other things. And one of them was the ability to be able to channel, not in the traditional medium sort of way. Um, not that I was doing it for anyone. You tend to think of a channel as someone who is speaking to a person in their environment to help them to make contact with people who are on the other side. For me, it was a very personal thing to make contact with loved ones on the other side. And then what I'm on, what I will call spirit guides, which I've come to understand are people who have been part of our lives and past lives. And we incarnate again into the physical material reality, and they decide that they're going to play a role as a spirit guide for you. So they were once people who were part of your life in other incarnations, in other lives, but they have decided that they're going to, their role in your lifetime this time is better served from a place where they can speak to you in spirit. So they become your spirit guides. Basically, they are your friends in higher dimensions. These higher dimensions exist. We know it mathematically, and you can find out through your own ability to be able to get into the states of consciousness, such as what Bob Monroe 
uh, taught people to do. And there are a lot of other people out there now who are doing it where um, you can, they, they, they creating the right conditions within yourself, making sure that you are safe, which is what Bob taught is done by creating the energy balloon around your body, because you can encounter things that will try to knock you off of that path um, that can scare the dickens out of you if you let it. These are all, though, just challenges that you're putting in front of yourself to make sure that you're ready to access these deeper places, because it really can change the way that you understand yourself and life and the world and the universe. And it can be a very hard thing for some people to do. Um, it can really be mind blowing. And when I say mind blowing, I don't mean it just metaphorically. I mean, you can lose your freaking mind because you're not ready for the changes that it will institute in you or that it will be caused. So anyone out there who's listening, who wants to do this for themselves, we talked about the, the meditation, calm, focused awareness about chanting the Om, um, about working with your energy. Um, a practice like Qigong is very good for it. And then finally, some of the work that, um, I mean, if you can get your hands on the gateway series, um, which is pretty costly if you buy it through the uh, Monroe Institute. But I'm now starting to see it. They're, they're releasing a lot of this stuff on like YouTube and stuff. You know, you can get at least the basic lessons there and you can test it out and see whether you like it. And then if it's really doing some good for you or you can tell that it's going to lead you places and you want to do it, well, then you can make, you know, an investment to, um, you know, to get your hands on the audio that take you to the more advanced stuff. Mm. Um which I have done. And well, I mean, speaking for myself, it works and it will open your mind to the existence of things that you maybe never even thought were that really do exist and give you the ability to do things that maybe you never thought that you could do. Have you tried it, Gary? I haven't tried it. I, I, everything that you've mentioned, I, I've, I've practiced, I've practiced meditation. I've practiced, uh, the qigong i've practiced um you know all that kind of stuff and um i mean i i, I think I, I don't do it enough i'm not dedicated enough to to the doing the whole practice um and like i've also done like some of the monroe stuff i actually have a somebody's somebody uh from Project Stargate, actually sent me the tapes that he made for Project Stargate. So I have those. And I also use like, um, binaural beats too, by changing the frequency and my, you know, it changes the brain waves. Yeah. It's almost like a little bit of a shortcut. Yeah, it is. <laughs> but, but it does work. I mean, there is no doubt. Yeah. It definitely. Uh, it, it is, it is pretty cool. And let me just, uh, interject real quick for your, for your listeners. Because I really want people, if they're curious, you know, they're listening to our conversation and maybe they've been led here for a reason. Um, there are no coincidences, this especially with these kinds of subjects. And when you get led to information and knowledge, if it's intriguing you, well, let me recommend that you mentioned binaural beats mm -hmm. doing brainwave entrainment. Yeah. I found that these things really help me. And I now have um, a collection of audio from, there's a guy named Jonathan Goldman. Um, and if you put in Jonathan Goldman, sacred sounds or sound healing, you can easily find it through search. Um, I, I have um, some audio from him. 
and from um, an organization called Sacred Acoustics, um, they they have the, the Sacred Acoustics stuff especially is using the, the the most advanced audio techniques. They're mixing together what what Bob Monroe did with Hemisync, which was a mixture of binaural beats, um, white noise, and, and the purpose was to create the brainwave entrainment which means that you you can actually get certain brainwave frequencies to predominate depending on the state of mind that you're trying to achieve. Well, the sacred acoustics now is taking that and they're mixing in other things like isochronic tones. Yes. And these are these will do the same thing except for it's 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 I would call it hemisync on steroids. <laughs> um, and the I've I've listened to a lot of it I've invested um, they run, you know, periodic sales and I will go in and grab, um, the stuff that, you know, interests me, but I have so much of it now that I don't need to buy anymore. Um, but I have made a habit of listening to this. I first thing in the morning, I listen to Jonathan Goldman's, um, chakra tune up. It's mm -hmm. the seven minute, uh, ch sorry, chakra. I've been mispronouncing it. I found out it's chakra. Um, tune-up and it's free it's online you can put it in just as a search engine seven minute chakra tune-up and jonathan goldman and boom you can get you can get this mp3 to download pop it there on your phone or some other device and now you have it and i like to do it first thing in the morning i chant along with it it only takes seven minutes and there's seven chakras so each one lasts about a minute and it's a great way to kind of get myself oriented, feeling in my body first thing in the day, because I tend to wake up a little disconnected and disassociated mm -hmm. from my body. Um, and then at night, I'll do some of the hemisync or I'll listen to the sacred acoustics. Um, I do the sacred acoustics in the middle of the day sometimes. The point being is, is that, hey, you've got headphones, you've got earbuds, <laughs> you can pop these things in, you've got a phone, you can keep these files on your phone, and you can take points you don't have to dedicate a lot of time to this right. the you know that was when and what you mentioned earlier gary is i found that a lot of the things that i did starting it, let's just say for instance 25 years ago and i kind of did it for a while as a practice and then i kind of fell off and then you know 20 years later i run across something that helps me to pick up where i left off what I that little bit of effort that I did years before laid a foundation in me. And we tend to think in terms of, well, oh gosh, I, you know, I started practicing Qigong, but then I fell off the wagon, you know, and oh, woe is me. I can't get myself to practice this all the time. <laughs> well, life happens, and you know, that's here's the thing. When it when you feel the movement in you in that direction go in that direction, do it yeah. because you may not be, you're not necessarily going to become the next Qigong master. We tend to shoot or, you know, set our sights too high, or you're going to be next thing, you know, you're going to be Edgar Casey too. And you're going to be reading the Akashic records and blah, blah, blah. we'll take it a step at a time <laughs> and allow these things to build because your life is a story that you're building over a lifetime. And, the the things that you've done earlier in your life it can in, in very unexpected and surprising ways you can find that you pick up with some of these things later and then is the right time 
sometimes the forces of the things that have not come together in a way for you to be able to do it now. Mm -hmm. You need time for other things to come together. It might be people that you're going to meet in your life, knowledge and information that you're going to encounter through books, podcasts, you know, uh, online courses, people that you meet, experiences that you have. But if you follow the impulse, that thing leading you from within, follow it. And over your lifetime, you might find that you get to the places where you are meant to be, but it, it's in fits and starts sometimes, or it happens in chunks, but just do it. Well, they say strike while the iron's hot. You know, that's kind of the idea. You get a hot idea. You want to do something, you know, that Qigong class down the street, or you encounter the YouTube series and you go, okay, let me do this now. It, it, it do it because it'll build on itself. And you maybe, you know, you've encountered these things and you do them for a while and, you know, hey, this is what Alan Watts, the famous uh, philosopher said. He said, you'll do it if you dig it. <laughs> Love that. Yeah, you Good dig story. it. You yeah. enjoy it. You know, when it becomes, you know, practice, practice is work. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I get done working all day. The last thing I want to do is work some more. If I want to sit down and meditate, it's because I dig it. But if I don't want to, you know, hey, there's always tomorrow. Yeah, that is cool. Yeah, actually, on my website, I have a free uh, chakra binaural meditation, too, made by Damien Keller. I Who I've heard of. And there are a lot of great people who are doing this now. We We live in a time when we have access to things that no other time in history have we had such access to it. And we can thank the internet for it. <laughs> I can find out today. I can find out what the practices of the Tibetan masters who used to be up there, you know, you had to go tens of, you know, 10, 12, 14, 20,000 feet up into the Himalayas to find these people. And then it gradually started trickling out uh, to Western cultures as people, as people got exposed to them and then came back and wrote about it and stuff like that. But it would sometimes take decades for the information to go from that person who got exposed to it until someone could have access to it, say, in a bookstore. Mm -hmm. But now we can find out these things. We, yeah. I have... The other day I was on YouTube and I was like, well, let me, you know, let me see if I learn something new about Qigong here. And I found a Qigong master. I really identified with him. He did it in a, in the way that really worked with me. And, you know, like I was following his movements. I'm watching it on my, you know, computer monitor. And I was able to get a lesson from a Qigong master. I would have to have gone to China and times past to get access to this, right. but I was able to do it from, so we have an opportunity for things and to do things and to learn things that to previous generations were unheard of, but there's also something else happening at the same time. And I think that your podcast and others that I know of, such as Wendy's coffee house, she's one of my favorite um, podcasters and she is exploring subjects that she got introduced to through personal experience in like the late 1990s, early 2000s. And then 
she started seeing an uptick in the numbers of people who were report, reporting experiences like she'd had. She had contact with spiritual beings. She had encounters with the men in black, you know, um, and, and that, that was a decade ago. And now just in that time, we have seen an explosion of access to this content on your podcast or on Wendy's podcast. I can listen to people who have written books and taught classes and given seminars and had personal experiences, of course, that they're basing all this on that it's amazing the reach and it's all being delivered to my podcast feed on my phone. It's, it's being delivered right in front of my face and, and I can't help, but be curious and want to find out more about it. So we have right now access to something. We are in a golden age of access to knowledge and information. And it's really exciting to be part of it. It, it is. It is. And, and I believe, too, that the access to this knowledge and information, I believe it will eventually lead to empowering people, helping people realize some of their true potential um, and kind of go back to, I think, a way of living that we were originally meant to live or did live actually during the time of Atlantis. Yes. <laughs> Thank you for bringing that in. Yes. I mean, Casey said that the Atlanteans were um, very advanced spiritually and psychically and that it was part of their, their, their everyday life. They were using crystals for, for healing, for energy channeling. Uh, for they, he said that they had forms of technology that are, you know, almost like Star Trek in a sense, but they were using the natural powers of the earth to be able to power their, you know, craft that could fly, you know, intercontinent go across continents in no time. You know, they, they were they were doing these things um, through the a, a, an understanding of of how the world really works and that the energy that relies underneath it and the ability of consciousness to be able to access the energy and the information and the knowledge. Casey said they were doing that. And we as advanced technological beings are actually primitive in comparison. But here's the cautionary tale that came out of Atlantis. He said that there were people who wanted to put a toll to surround that information and knowledge in um, to make people to have to pay for it in the sense of creating almost like a caste system where there were a lot of people in Atlantis who were, you know, shoveling the crap who were living with, without access to this stuff. The, the, the very, high technology that they developed and the knowledge and information. This has happened over and over again. When we discover something about human ability and our ability to be able to manipulate nature and somebody will come along and decide it is ours and it is not theirs. And if they want it, they have to worship us. So, Casey said that what actually led to the downfall of Atlantis was a division within the people themselves where you had one group 
that had this dark idea, this selfish idea about how to use this knowledge and this power. And then others who were kind of from the old ways who said, no, this is given to us freely by the creator. And the, we, we need to, f- to freely share it with our other people and that we are all, we are all equal and we're all part of one consciousness. This knowledge is, I'm starting to see it really seep back in, in ways that it's, it's being echoed from the, the voices of people around me who are realizing that we are, we are all part of this one consciousness and that it loves each of us equally. And that there may be differences in how we look and our abilities and talents that we're able to manifest, but that this is something that is built into us all. And we are now starting to see these things emerge again in a way that it's happening organically. And I'm really encouraged by it. There is a movie series um, that is, um, gosh, I'm hoping that I have it here in one of my tabs. Um, I I believe it's called Superpowers. Wait, is this it? Yes, superpowerfilm.com. And I want to give a shout out to these people because they are talking to the people who are leading in this field, in these fields who are studying it and who are living it and doing it. And they're getting well known for what they do because they're, you know, the proof is in the pudding, the tree bears its fruit. Um, But one of the things that they've done, it's in one of their episodes is they're teaching children to be able to see with the mind's eye. And they, in the, in the film that I saw, and by the way, this is on, there's a a preview on YouTube and there's some other people who are also documenting the same thing. And you you don't necessarily have to pay to stream these movies off of Vimeo. Um, But um, they, I've, they, they're showing these children. They're basically teaching these children from a young age that this is natural and it's something that they can do. And they say, okay, I want you to read the book, but I'm going to put this blindfold on you. It's a special kind of blindfold that doesn't allow any light. There's no way these kids can be looking, you know, like peeking around it. And they've showed these kids able to read from a book with their mind's eye. Wow. This is the emergence of something. If we can start with the young, get them when they're very young and show them that it's just as natural as playing in the sandbox, that they can do these things then I, it will create a sea change in us as a human species. And we will evolve to the next after Homo sapiens sapien, which is our classification of where we are on the evolutionary tree as the latest incarnation of humans. There is a next one that's coming that will be the Homo sapien with ready access to its full array of talents and abilities which includes these things like being able to see with the mind's eye. When you see the videos, Gary, it blows. It, it, uh, it, it is. I, I was, I was struck by it emotionally because I saw what I felt like I was part. I was here to witness is the emergence of this new evolution in the human species. And that these things that we are doing, such as doing our, you know, 
hey, follow along with Bob's, you know, Bob Monroe's Gateway series, you know, listen to the sacred acoustics, learn how to meditate, practice Qigong. You know, we are doing these things now from where we are as adults, but to see it emerging in the kids who will start doing this from a very, very young age and they will take what we have done and the sky is the limit for them because we're only scratching the surface of what we are capable of doing. And I think these kids are being born into the world because they're going to have to recreate it. They're going to, they're going to have to tap the earth's ability consciously for the earth to be able to regenerate itself because the world that's coming very quickly is going to be very different um, ecologically than the one that we've been brought up in. But there were things that had to change, you know, an apocalypse is a word for revelation and we're we're going through a revelation right now and revelations are hard man but so we've had to teach ourselves something um but fortunately whatever it is out there that created us and created all of this wants us to be able to continue this journey this grand experiment that we have as these conscious beings and it will help us to heal this planet that we have abused so badly and these children, I think, are the vanguard of that wow. change. Well, I just sent superpower film an invite to do my podcast. <laughs> right on. Hey. I'm really hey, curious you, about that. Superpowerfilm.com. And they might, you know, be willing to come on and talk about it. There, There's a lot of names that are mentioned um, in there. Uh, people who are accessible. Um, you know, you can find them through their websites and stuff like this. Here it is. Episode three childhood's pure potential and it shows in the picture right there on i have um superpowerfilm.com slash episode dash expired they had a free preview of all this stuff and i managed to watch a lot of it um but here it is episode three and it shows a children it shows a child with her fingers on a book and she's wearing the mask that prevents her from being able to see. And when you see the mask, you realize this isn't just a blindfold, man. This hmm. is, you know, they use this in in scientific research to, to, to be able to ensure that a person isn't cheating, you know, trying to look, you know, around the edges, you know, see out of their peripheral vision, you know. But you can see it right there in the picture. And when you see the videos of the children doing this stuff, they're showing what their pure potential is. Yeah, man. Um, there's another one called Energy Heals Intuitively. And I really caught on to that because of the use of sound. And it has a guy, uh, they interview a bunch of different people, but they get into things like cymatics and stuff. Yeah, cymatics um, is cool. And sacred geometry. Yeah. <laughs> it's all and, connected. Yeah. Um, and the, I mean, the guy is using high technology to show you how this stuff works. And um, when you see it operating at that level, that it's, it's very hard for a skeptic to be able to write all this stuff off because they're showing it to you through science and engineering, how this stuff actually affects the environment, the human body, especially. And that this is something that we used to know that we used to use, you know, the, um, the, the great pyramid in, um, Egypt is there's evidence that it is a great big sound resonator. There's, there are structures that are within the great pyramid that were, would have required 
some real feats of engineering that if it was just a tomb boy you talk about an outdated idea oh yeah they buried the pharaohs there well where are the pharaohs if they're buried there they're not there i'm sorry um but the 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 point being that they built the pyramids as gigantic sound resonators and they knew back then the sound frequencies to hit that would cause changes physically and psychologically mm -hmm. the 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 pure the, all of the pyramids were were built with this intention. Now there might be some that were later built that were not sound resonators that were not healing centers. Maybe they really were built as tombs, but the original ones that dot the landscape around Giza and then going along the Nile, those were built as temples for healing and for other things that people they knew how to do it back then. We are relearning this now, and we're learning it in a way that we can use our equipment to measure it, and we can approach it scientifically, which has its limits. But here's the thing, Gary, is I think that it might help to prevent what's happened to the mistake that we have made time and time again, is, is that we get this knowledge and this ability, and there are some people who want to keep it for themselves. Oh, yeah. Well, science enables us to be able to share this stuff for anybody to be able to find it out. Of course, with some of this equipment, it costs a lot of money, you know, but the information that some people are getting because they have the equipment and the knowledge is now being freely shared. Right. That's and like, um, like, like Damien Keller, the one who does the uh, made binaural beats for my website. Yeah. He has, I think it's an EEG machine. That reads his brainwave, so he actually tests, tested on himself, and you know, maps out his own brainwaves as he's trying different frequencies. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, in the in the superpowers film, um, at least one of the versions of this that I saw on um, YouTube, it showed um, there's a guy named Dan Winter who's um, this. He's this amazing engineer. Um, he says that he has lived in a state of kundalini bliss for the last 30 years. And Dan has been getting a lot of information about the what we used to consider to be mystical and esoteric. Uh, but he's finding that there's a science behind it, such as behind the golden ratio and mm -hmm. things like that. He's, he's actually finding that these, the, you know, that the energy and stuff, it works based off of mathematical and scientific principles that we already know, but he built along with these other people, they built an EEG. Um, it's, it's doesn't, it, it goes on the head, but it's not like the old style machines. It's just, it almost looks like a pair of glasses. Yeah. It's just a band that goes around the head and it's able to read the EEG points. And they were, they have an app that they sell along with it. You can buy the, the, the machine and the app. It's a few hundred dollars and you can actually see your brainwave patterns in real time. And they were showing that these kids that they had the blindfold on and the kids are using their mind's eye to read with. They were showing what was actually going on in their brain at the time. And then with that information, you can try out these techniques and see in real time how your brain is responding to it <laughs> so that you get the, the immediate feedback that you need to be able to make rapid progress. Right. Yeah, because then you have the evidence. Because at that point, you're no longer questioning because you're seeing the proof. 
And I'm sure that makes things go along a lot quicker. Yeah, it sure does. Um, they teach that with remote viewing, um, the, that you need immediate feedback. This was something that the early people, the people who you mentioned Stargate earlier, yeah, the people who were doing that beforehand at the SRI Stanford research Institute, who were part of the original program before Stargate, um, they were doing, they, they were the, the principal researchers behind the, um, the, the, the initial remote viewing programs from the early 1970s. Then it morphed into Stargate starting in the mid to later 1970s. That, that's how I understand the time frame. Um, but they said that they figured out early on that the people they were training or using in remote viewing, that they needed immediate feedback to be able to tell what was going on. Like they would do an experiment. They'd be like, okay, um, we have a list of locations that are within you know, 10 miles of here. And we're talking about Northern California near San Francisco. And they would say, okay, the researchers, uh, this group is going to go out and in exactly an hour, they will be at a location. One of many locations that were put into these envelopes, randomly chosen, blind to the researchers. So they didn't know what were in the envelopes. They had like a graduate student or someone who would pick the places they would have the group or a person go to that location that was told to them was inside the sealed envelope. And then at the appointed time, they would have the um, remote viewer sketch or try to find the location in their own mind to remotely view, see in their mind's eye, the location that the researcher or whoever had gone to. But they found that the, the remote viewer needed to have feedback quickly to be able to understand the process that they went through, what was what led them to the right information or led them away from getting the right information. So it's very important to have this feedback so that you know. There's a lot of what you do when you're practicing this stuff is you're learning how to separate the chaff. You're learning how to separate the noise. Your brain is constantly receiving two streams of information one dominates it and that is the noise one is in the background and that's the good information that's the intuition that's the signals from the mind's deeper senses of the mind that you're always receiving and you need to be able to tune to that and that it opens up all these with remote viewing I've been through some training in remote viewing, and that is one of the first things that they taught us. How do you get to the good signal, the correct information? And then how do you know what's not a good signal? How do you know what's noise? You have to go through the process and, the, the, it, and you need the feedback that tells you, oh, when my mind went off in this direction, that was leading me in the wrong direction. But when my mind was doing this, that got me to where I needed to be. And you learn what the difference is. And that's, it's very important for learning this process. So yes, you need feedback right away. And these EEG machines are doing it. You can be like, okay, let me picture in my mind's eye, a yellow rose. Ooh, okay. I can see it now. Can I move my mind around in three dimensions? Can I, can I make, can I see the rose from all these different directions? 
Now you see all these theta waves spiking in your, e, you know, in the EEG readout. Theta waves are associated with these deeper abilities mm-hmm. of the mind. And so you see it happening on in real time. But if you're not getting the good picture of the rose in your mind, you could look at the readout and go, oh, my theta waves aren't spiking as they did last time. What is it that's the difference? Okay, maybe you're uncomfortable. Now you're applying other techniques. You're like, yeah, I'm not sitting straight, am I? Or, you know, it's I'm hungry and I'm distracted. Or, you know, I got in an argument before coming in for my session. You can see the things, you can trace it to know what your process is. It's different for everyone. You can know what your process is and what gets you into the right state of mind to be able to access your own gifts, talents, and abilities. That is a good roadmap. Right on, man. Uh, you know, it's, it's just it's so cool because we've relied so much on, on, on teachers who have done it before, you know, and with this technology now, because the same technique might not always work for the same person or the same cultural background or whatever. And to, to use some of this technology helps us kind of get over that hump. It can save just years and years of experimentation. Yeah, it sure can. Um, and we we are now, like we said earlier, in the golden age of access to this information. If one thing doesn't work for you, then try another. Mm-hmm. The, the the numbers of gifts in the in the in the Eastern traditions, um, in mostly in in the Vedic and the yogic traditions, but also in some Buddhist traditions and stuff, they talk about the existence of 32 cities. These are gifts of the mind that manifest with practice of yoga, which is yoga was really just a way of preparing your body for meditation. We've turned it into an exercise, right? As we do in the West, you know, high impact yoga, you know, and the yogi is going, what, you know, uh, but Anyway, I, I, I digress, but the, he, it's been identified and there is a um, book called Supernormal um, by um, Dean Radin, where he went to India and places where these people have practiced this stuff for thousands of years and talked about these gifts that emerge in the people who are the disciples and regular practitioners of these different types of abilities and arts. Well, there are 32 of them according to one tradition, and there's 36 of them according to another. 32 is a lot. If you can get two or three or four that are uniquely you, or just one, then you found that thing. But the path to it, there's many different paths to getting to it and different ways that you can practice it. You know, um, something like astral uh, travel, astral projection, Mm -hmm. out-of-body experience. There are things that Bob Monroe taught about it. Okay, well, if that works for you, great. But if it doesn't, try William Buhlman. He teaches his own version of it. You know, try um, uh, John Peterson. I think John is his first name. Um, he's He's got a book out with all kinds of different approaches. So this is find what works for you. You have access to the information. If one doesn't work, then keep trying others. And you will eventually find one the best way of getting there for you and two, what that is, you know, whether it's as remote viewing, you know, it's precognition, it's Edgar Casey's gifts for, you know, being able to give readings to help people with their health and well-being and on their path as a, 
you know, as a as a human who's who's here as an incarnation of this higher dimensional being that has reasons for being here, you know, whatever it is, everyone has something that's very special about them that they can learn how to do. And now we finally have um, a lot of technology that's backing us and being able to um, access and develop these gifts. Wow. So it sounds like this episode is sort of its own Bimini road back to Atlantis and back to <laughs> our true selves. Yeah, man. I like the segue. You know, <laughs> we started with uh, with Atlantis and it does. It leads us back to something that we've we've already been there. You know, the Atlanteans, what we know about them, they were there already, you know, and they we are finding our way back there again. And the timing couldn't be better because we really need it. And um, so, yes, we are following our own Bimini Road back to our true nature and what we really are. Yeah, absolutely. Man, this is a fantastic episode. <laughs> Thanks for coming on. In my pleasure. We always have a great time talking about these subjects. We and, do. Um, yeah, yeah. Right up. Uh, you found one that was uh, really opened up um, um, a wide-ranging discussion. So yeah. um, a lot of good information. Uh, before we wrap it up, where can my listeners find you? Sure. J.M. DeBoard, D-E-B-O-R-D. Um, I write books about dreams. Um, I also offer online classes about uh, dreams and interpretation, dream exploration. Um, and um, I've been a longtime Reddit moderator at the Dreams subreddit, Past Lives subreddit, and the Edgar Casey subreddit. So anybody who's on, I'm Radal there. That's my username there. And um, anyone interested can put that in, you know, into a search term or go to Reddit and, you know, look up the Edgar Casey subreddit, look up the Dream subreddit. Um, we are sharing a lot of information and experience there that um, if you're looking for a community of people who um, share these interests in these subjects, you'll find them there. Yeah, absolutely. And I will post the links to, to uh, your books and to the Reddit pages. On a, in the notes of this episode so my listeners can check it out and join right and um, maybe next time we can do a episode on dream incubation ah yeah um, would be glad to there are a lot of things that you can do other than interpret dreams that if you want to get into working with dreams there are things that you can do other than dream interpretation and analysis and one of them is dream incubation the the dream source is responsive to you and it accepts requests and if it follows the golden rule to do no harm if it's something that would be good for you or at least wouldn't do any harm then it's likely to grant your request and there are some simple ways to go about it so it <laughs> sounds like a great uh we can start with dream incubation and then um we'll go off uh, into other aspects of dream exploration how does that sound that sounds like a plan right on okay all well, right. I will see you again probably in a couple months, Gary. Thanks for having me on, bro. You got it. Thank you. And hang on one second while I play the outro. Thank you for listening to Everything Imaginable on KGRA Radio. You can reach Gary at everythingimaginable2020.com or email him at everythingimaginable2020 at gmail.com. He's also on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. You can buy t-shirts, coffee mugs, and other merchandise. 
to support the costs of producing this podcast. Click on the merchandise link at the top of his page, www.everythingimaginable2020.com. Oh yes, I almost forgot. You can buy his book, Enlightenment Guaranteed. It's the only book on Zen that you'll ever need, and it's on Amazon. It'll change your life, because remember, everything that exists was first imagined. Hey, if you love what you listen to, don't forget, rate, review, and subscribe.